So good, we are so blessed by this all-volunteer-led uh, CLC-grown music team. Let's just give our appreciation to them again and to our tech team as well, serving. Uh, they work so hard for us, and we are so blessed. Uh, Jason, Cindy's own Jason at the keyboard is organizing this in this season, and uh, you know, we recognize you're the worship team. Like, you are the ultimate worship team, and they are facilitating our worship, so. What a delight. Um, also, uh, this is our second week in two services. Last week was the largest attendance we've had in three years, so praise God for that. Uh, and um, you're the early risers, but uh, tell all your friends, Jesus loves them, even if they don't like 9 a.m. <laughs> we'll do 1045, and uh, that's exciting as well. Lots of things going on here uh, in this season. So, uh, And we're in this text about God bringing heaven to earth in us. It's like before... God wants to get us to heaven. He wants to do something special in us here as, as a appetizer, as a colony of what heaven is going to be here. Uh, and we're looking at the section where he moves from the Holy Spirit acting on us to the Holy Spirit demonstrating that in our relationships. Uh, it's one thing to say you are filled with God, you know God, you have the Holy Spirit. It's another thing to have it ripple out into your relationships. And so we're coming to this section in Ephesians uh, where he applies what it looks like. Uh, if you want to road test what the Spirit of God looks like, he revolutionizes our relationships. And he mentions three areas because he's writing to a household, really. Churches met in houses. They couldn't have buildings. They were being hunted down by the emperor. Uh, and so they met in households. And so he mentions the family, the marriage, children, and even they had a form of debt slavery. Not that the scripture approves of that, um, but how Christ revolutionizes that. So we're going to look at this text um, from Ephesians 5 starting with verse 18. Uh, and the reason we're starting there is I want you to see in, in this uh, text, he starts with, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Um, that's the primary command in this whole section. It governs the whole command. And he says there are three ways, three means by which the Holy Spirit shows himself in our lives. First is we're people of praise. We're addressing one another with the overflow, that singing and making music in our heart. Secondly, we're so filled with Christ that we can't get over what he has done for us. So we are always walking through life, um, the difficult things, the blessings, with thanking him for what he has done for us. And then third, and this is the one we're picking up on today, is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, and in fact, um, this whole command and this whole section, he borrows the verb uh, here before he applies it um, he doesn't even have that verb submit when he picks up on what wives are to do their husbands because he's lifting it from submitting to one another. Uh, you may not have been proclaimed, that may not have been taught always clearly in the church, but here he's saying that what the wife is doing is born out of that mutuality, mutual submission to Christ so that it, it is not a singular command to her. It doesn't, the verb doesn't even appear. Um, so here, let's begin uh, at verse 18 read to the word of God. This is the only perfect, infallible thing that will be said from here this morning. So hear and be attentive to what God has said here. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, let's see. Can you follow through this text with me? Looks like it got out of order on my... Yeah, there we go. Then verse 22. Wives, submit to your hus own husbands as you do to the Lord. Have you got control of it up there? I think I've lost control here. We got it now? For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for these practical words of how the Holy Spirit when he comes into our life, he must affect every relationship. And Lord, just like the household church that read these words, Lord, we pray that we would bring our every relationship for your enrichment and for your power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you all know you are preachers? Uh, We are all preaching sermons. (laughs) Uh, And this text says that the most important sermons that we preach are actually not done with our words, but they're they're done with our relationships. Here he describes marriage as he says, marriage is not something that uh, can really even be explained. He says he's talking about a mystery, and he says ultimately that marriage itself is one of those relationships that is a window into the heart of God. But it's true virtually for all of our relationships and the way that we deal with people and the most intimate relationships in our lives will preach an impactful sermon beyond the cumulative effect of all of our words. That's true even for preachers, um, for professional preachers, because we are all preaching sermons in our relationships. Um, I met my wife in 1987 at Westminster Seminary, 30, uh, 36 years ago. Hard to believe since we're still in our 30s. Um, but I remember stalking her. Um, I was the treasurer for the dining club. She had to sign up for meals. And uh, we had, you know, it took two hours to get her signed up. It usually only took three minutes. It took two hours to get her signed up. And um, then I remember stalking her because, um, well, it really was, the odds were against me. 500 men, six women on campus. So, you know act fast, and uh, stalking her around the library, stalking her like, hey, you wanna go for a walk? Let's take a little study break, Um, you know, and uh, I chickened out asking her on the first fancy date, the movie Hoosiers, the greatest sports movie of all time was coming out, it was filmed in my hometown, to see if I could coax this, this, because I, she caught my attention right away, just her passion for Jesus. It was absolutely clear that the most important thing in this woman's life was to follow Jesus Christ. And I just saw the radiance and the beauty and the care and intelligence you know, pouring out of her. Uh, and and I'm like, I, I think the thought that struck me is like, this is a young woman who deserves a fantastic husband. I need to marry her before she finds one. Um, uh, and so that courtship and, and 35 years uh, of that, and, and I think this text has been something we've often talked about and, and been in the currency uh, of our home of, of how important it is to really to understand this. And, and one of the things that I have to approach this, this text as not only a husband but as a pastor is sadly I've often seen this text rested out of its full biblical context and used instead of fostering intimacy and change that God would, would have from it to actually bring damage. And the way it's happened is that um, a verbs and words are important in this text that are not there. When Paul writes this text, he actually uh, is subverting all of the hierarchical relationships. In other words, where there's superior and inferior, where there's a, a boss and a subservient. And the way he does it is he puts some bumper guards around this text so that people don't get in, injured. And the first way he does is he basically is saying, this, these texts about relationships only work 
um, for those who want to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's very clear in, in the original because actually Paul doesn't even provide uh, the verb. Um, and again, there's, there's no place in this text where men are encouraged to rule over their wives. In fact, you won't find any place in the Bible where it commands husbands to lead their wives. That may be surprising to you, but it's, it's not there. Find it and show me. Um, all the commands are love and serve and lift up. Um, but this text says, um, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And then literally the next thing he says, he borrows from submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And he says, wives to your husbands. So if your English translations were actually following uh, with care, word for word, it would be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, this mutualism where each are deferring to the other in a relationship of reciprocity, and then he borrows from that and says, wives to your husband, and he focuses on the wives for two verses so that this, this verb that's supplied in your translations, almost all the translations, wives submit to your husbands, it's borrowing it from the mutualism in, verse, in verses 18, 19, 20, 21. It's borrowing from verse 21, the mutualism. It can't mean something different because it's borrowing the verb from right there. Do you see that? Yeah. And that's kind of it. It's a textual, textual thing, but it, it's so important. And, and, and the, the reason that's important is because in all of these relationships, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does something really subversive to the natural order. In other words, he's not simply saying to the men, hey, we live in a patriarchal, misogynistic world. Be a nicer, more polite, patriarchal misogynist. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He's not saying to masters of slaves who fell into debt and were paying off their slavery. This was not chattel slavery, which, which is even more horrible, what, what stained our nation's history with uh, and, and we uh, were freed of through the cost of blood. This is not even that wicked, but it's still not endorsed by God. But in this situation, if you can imagine it, Christ walks into the room through the Bible. I, I love the picture of the Bible. It's like Christ walking into our lives through the Bible into the room. And, and what does he, who does he notice? He, he, he does something really radical and revolutionary is that the first person in each of these power relationships that he addresses is the most powerless. This was not done. What, what you've gotta see is here, Paul is lifting something, what they had household codes, and, and in those household codes, er, codes, Aristotle wrote one, basically the only people addressed in the household code, codes is, is the person in power. You don't even acknowledge the person who doesn't have power. But Paul not only acknowledges them, but he elevates them to the first status. Do you see how rude Paul is being to the power structures? <laughs> he is being positively rude. He's walking into the room where the king of England is and he's talking to the, the humble custodian. He's, he's putting him on ignore. He's, he's talking to the person who doesn't have the power first. This is absolutely revolutionary, and he does it in each situation. And then he relativizes their obligation to the power. In other words, he, he relativizes their obligation, one, by rooting the wife's obligation in mutualism, in, in a kind of submission that is reciprocal, uh, but then he... In, he does the same thing with children and parents. Now, um, Christian Hessling is gonna preach on parenting because he is now an expert after twin sanity for four months. Um, uh, we'll see how twin sane Christian is now. <laughs> um, but um, even in the parenting, this is crazy. He, he addresses the children. Now, do you see what this is doing? Who is Ephesians written to? It's written to the saints in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus the holy ones, and he addresses the children first. And he, and he says, obey in the Lord. Uh, by the way, he doesn't say to wives obey. He borrows, the, the word is lesser submit. But children obey in the Lord for this is right. And then he commands the fathers, don't you in, in exasperate your children. <laughs> he puts a limit on them, okay? 
Um, when he comes to uh, slavery, he says, slaves obey your, and he inserts a description, these earthly masters. It's only in this fallen earth. He doesn't endorse their, even their hierarchy or their authority. He says, this is an earthly, this is an earthly situation. Don't, don't think that this is what God's ideal is. And then he says, these masters are gonna answer to their master and your master who is above them. And he says, so um, render to them that, that service that you're required. But then he says to the masters, he says, and you submit to your slaves in verse nine. You can check it out. He borrows the same, this is radical. He is, he is you're not supposed to notice the lesser power first. You're not supposed to really notice them at all. Then when he talks to the people in power, there's a sense in which he is clobbering them with an awareness that they are going to give answer to God. And the la one of the last things he says in verse nine of chapter six is that God chose no favorites. In other words, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> it's like the, the chess player said, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. <laughs> that everybody is, is leveled. And so this is a, again, this is not saying just be a nicer dictator. <laughs> this is saying that there is, there is a, an ultimate power whose, whose heart is restless until all of these relationships reverberate with love. The ultimate answer to all of the, quote, power relationships is that they, they reverberate with love. And that's why women get a couple verses that again relativize that reciprocal role of submission saying in the lord <laughs> okay so there's there's no sense of doing what is dishonorable or abusive or any of that and yet it has sometimes been used that way there are certain settings of church and i've been in them and i've been around them where basically um, there is a kind of authority unilateral authority given to the husband that basically says um and you can see where this might appeal to husbands. It's like, hey, um, when you both agree, make the decision your way. And when it's a tie, you get to be the tiebreaker, make the decision your way. <laughs> Which means in all situations, uh, you know, when we set up marriages where a husband has decision-making power, no matter what, we create marriages in which the opinions, his opinions, by definition, matter more than hers. And that is not in this text. In fact, you'll see, this is why husbands get, we get eight verses of being hit hard. <laughs> it's like, okay, if you read these, these verses as a husband and you think you were still awesome, <laughs> you are not reading them. It's like, each verse is kind of like, wow, hit me again, I'm still breathing, God. Like again and again, he's saying, he's saying give yourself up for your wife in the Lord. And yet, um, these verses, and I have to spend some time correcting the, the false freight in these verses because they have been used um, to justify or give cover for abuse or rationalize abuse. Um, there is never a place in the Bible where one human being is called to dominate another human being. You can just go to Genesis 1 where, again, there's no hierarchy before sin came into the world. There is no hierarchy of any kind Eve is made out of Adam's side. She's not made out of his foot to be trampled on by him. She's not made out of his head to compete with him. She's, she's made near his heart to be loved, uh, under his arm to be sheltered. She's welcomed as an equal. And in fact, Genesis 1.26 says, male and female, he created them. In God's image, he created them. And then it says, take a dominion over the earth. In other words, take the care and development over all the areas of the earth so that it flourishes, that command is given equally to women and men. It's revolutionary. The one thing that God never says to take dominion over is another image bearer. Uh, I think this is why dictators and tyrants and abusers, in a sense, they're, they're stepping on the forbidden area. It is, it, you, we are forbidden from ever dominating or crushing uh, another person. It is to dominate another individual is disobedient to God. Amen. And yet sometimes these verses are, are described that way. And I have, I have seen them used that way, sadly. Uh, and um, 
they have been exploited and leveraged in this way. And again, I would say, if uh, there, it is very likely there is someone here in the midst of an abusive relationship. And that is not God's design for you. And there is no rationale and no excuse for it. If, if you walk on eggshells to avoid upsetting your marriage partner, that is a sign of abuse. If your feelings and opinions are rarely validated, that is a sign of abuse. If your partner is mistrustful of you for no reason, that is a sign of abuse. If you feel like you were unable to discuss problems in the relationship or you feel stuck or confused or not validated, that is a sign of abuse. Uh, and there is absolutely no excuse for it. Again, emotional abuse includes what it involves. It's not limited to the use of words to manipulate, discourage, humiliate, deceive, frighten, or threaten. And if, if you alter your behavior because you are frightened of how your partner will react, you are being abused. It's that simple. Um, Abusive partners don't really just have a problem with their own anger, they have a problem with the other person's anger. If you feel like it's not safe, you know, it's safe for your partner to be angry, but it's not safe for you to be angry, that's a sign of abuse. One, one of the basic human rights we have is sometimes to be angry about stuff. Um, and in a healthy relationship, um, you can't reserve that reality of being able to be frustrated or angry just for one part party. Abuse can make a person feel straitjacketed. Uh, and so all of that, none of that is, is what is de demanded here, but here we are talking about a commitment of, of a constant ministry of encouragement and support that is reciprocated in the relationship. Again, that's why he says submitting or deferring to one another out of reverence to Christ. And it is, it is an ongoing commitment. It isn't just what happens when you're at an impasse and you both disagree. <laughs> I remember when I was in seminary and these things were being studied meticulously and a friend of mine who was committing to go to the mission field in a Muslim country, it's pretty, pretty high commitment because there's not a lot of affirmation. You're going to a Muslim country, you're gonna have a slow, slow and he was, he was getting married months before he was gonna begin training to that. And he went to different seminary faculty and he said, I wanna figure out this marriage stuff. Is it, is it mutualism of, of equals and, and we make decisions or is it what I hear some saying, it's kind of hierarchical and it's up to me and I'm the leader and whatever. And I remember he went to a very godly missions professor and he said, well, he says, I've been married um, almost 50 years. And he said, in there's, there's only been really one time I can remember that my wife and I were at an absolute impasse. I really felt we should go this way and she felt absolutely we should go this way. And he said, so of course I did what most husbands do. I made the decision to go this way. And it is the only disaster that it took us years and years to recover from. <laughs> he said, what I would advise you to do is when you really can't come to, it, to an absolute decision to not to avoid the reflex of saying you just have to make it your way and to say, maybe there is something else I am not seeing or paying attention to here. And, and the beauty of a mutualism is, is it makes love prominent. And the commitment is not just a commitment to say, hey, when we disagree, I'll go your way. But the commitment is, is saying, it isn't even just saying, hey, I will be here till death do us part. Uh, but it says, I commit every day to make this marriage the best it can be. If you, if you have the blessing of being married this morning, if that is, is in your relationship, that, that is all, the ultimate marriage commitment is saying, I commit before God every day to make this marriage the best that it can be. Commitment is an active daily decision to renew that one-time vow. And the reality of what this text knows is that when two people join together to love each other sacrificially, they will find happiness. If you aim for happiness instead of aiming to love, uh, you will ultimately fail to achieve either. Um, Sheila Ray Grigori uh, has written a lot of recent books on marriage that I think have been really helpful in, in bringing insight and studies. And one of the things she points out is that she says, uh, the risk of divorce skyrockets, skyrockets in marriages in which the husband is the one who is seen as the one who must always ultimately make the decisions. It 
it silences a mutualism that is part of what builds real affection in marriage. So again, that's just that's part of, of the pastoral burden is to say, let's make sure we don't buy into a kind of worldly projection uh, that settles for something that is simply a politer form of what Paul is seeking to, to place. He, he is not just a paradigm shift. You've heard of paradigm shifts. He is doing a paradigm bomb. He is just like laying little plastic explosives over all the assumptions of relationships in the ancient world, and he is detonating them with the spirit of, the spirit of Christ to say, there is something that I want to displace power with, and that is the power of love. You know, the, the love of power is really the source of misery in the world. And how is the love of power cured? It's by the power, the power of love cures the love of power. And the power of love is, is seen here. I want to just clobber the men a little bit here so you can join me in my misery and humility. Um, God says four times to us. He, again, he, he borrows the verb submit from the mutual submission, but four times God says to husbands, let's just, let, let's just have the men read them so you can join me in the misery seat. Um, Ephesians 5.25, he says, read it together. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Do we love our own body? Well, we may not love what it looks like, but, do, but what happens when you get an ingrown toenail? We can't stand it. You know, um, our wives can have the serious flu and they still wait on us and our family and our children. We, you know, we have a minor cold, we are in bed. Like, right, how many of you? Me, that's me. Maybe it's not all of you. Verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. And then verse 33, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. Well, I'm so glad we have communion this morning. <laughs> You know, that kind of love, there is nobody who lives out the standard of that. And let me just say that just like submission is not the property only of the wife, love is not the only, it's the responsibility of love is not just the husband. When he says that the husband must give himself up as Christ gave himself up, he's borrowing from what he wrote in the first part of Ephesians 5. When he says, live a life of love, just like Christ who gave himself up as a sacrifice and offered himself as a fragrant offering to God. Um, Love is that comprehensive command and it, it, is, it is what fills it. It, it. it is possible to submit to someone without love, but it is not really possible to love someone without deferring to their best and refer, deferring to what will prosper them. And so this is the vision for all these relationships. Uh, it changes the way parenting works out. Parenting is not seen in this authoritarian way. It, it, it is seen in a relationship uh, of self-giving and love. Uh, the way we relate to people who are unseen, who are marginalized, who don't have the power, is we, we do what this passage does. We elevate them. We focus on them. We give attention to the places where there's not going to be the reward coming back to us. This is, the, it, this is incredibly subversive to the way that the world operates. Incredibly subversive. And it means that in marriage we trade um, selfishness for oneness. Uh, the radical nature of this text quotes the words of Genesis. It says, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. Now again, Adam and Eve, they didn't have mother and father. So their, their union is written as a as a proclamation of the way marriage is to work. But here's, here's what was so radical, so radical in the ancient Near East where family background and which tribe are you part of and all of this. And it says that when a husband and wife stand at the altar and take vows, the vow that they are taking to each other is more important than the blood ties that they leave behind. You know, the, the old way where the bride's side and the groom's side are sitting on those different sides of the room and it's saying all of a sudden the allegiance to those who share your DNA, who share your life history, it has been eclipsed and dwarfed because the covenant you make before God is stronger than blood. It, that relationship is even stronger than your commitment and love for the children that will share half of your DNA, that will share your DNA. Even those children one day will be called to leave and cleave and become one in this picture of, of love that is formed by covenant. Amen. 
Because the covenant binds us with each other uh, and fills us with, with the love of a God who was committed to us in perfection. And, and this is how God brings glory into human life is that when we learn to love in this way. And this kind of love is not to be seen only in our families. Christ said, if you love those who love you, if you serve and invite around your table, those who you know, will invite you around their table, those who will reciprocate. But this kind of love is supposed to bubble out to people who are unable to pay us back. And it, and it brings this, this powerful rebuttal to the way that the world loves in order to gain advantage or comfort or reciprocity. But Christ calls us to have a, a kind of love that bubbles out and brings in the people who don't have any ability to pay back and any ability to be reciprocal. I'm gonna close with a, a story about my grandparents. I love to talk about my grandparents. I was blessed with incredible set of grandparents who lived just on a farm a couple miles from me and then moved to just a couple blocks away. Man, I think like that's the dream. If you, if you were a grandparent and you live close to your grandkids, you have, you have a bonanza. <laughs> you are living the dream. And um, I was in high school, and the greatest Christmas gift that I ever bought was something that um, had dividends far beyond what I could imagine. Um, back in the early days of my childhood, not, not in my teen years, because it was already passe, and some of you probably don't even, most of you probably don't even remember this, but there was a TV show called The Lawrence Walk Show. Uh, you know, and a one, and a two, and a one, you know, and, and it was followed by hee-haw, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm really dating myself, but I mean, I'm telling you, I was but knee-high when these things were going on. And uh, so the show was, you know, fading in terms of some of its audience, still had a, a loyal audience, but I found out when I was playing at a youth symphony that the Lawrence Walk show was coming near my town, to Indianapolis, and that one of its stars Norma Zimmer was gonna be featured in this show. And so I scrambled and I saved up and I got tickets for three of us in like row two of, you know, Butler University's Clues Hall. And um, I surprised my grandparents with it on Christmas day and I think it was the, the 26th that with my new driver's license, I, you know, drove them to Indianapolis and we're sitting in row two. Now, most of you don't know who Norma Zimmer is, but just picture this. I mean, you needed sunglasses to look at her dress. It was like sequined, uh, mirror, you know, uh, you know, to catch the spotlight, and her hair we pretty much touched the second story. Poofy hair, you know, and um, so they knew all the people on this show, uh, but Norma Zimmer comes out in Clues Hall, and um, she takes everybody's breath, everybody's like, ooh, and I, Norma Zimmer, this amazing, um, you know, glamorous dress, put the sunglasses on to look at the, you know, the sequins coming off that dress, the poofy hair, uh, and this audience of a couple thousand was just absolutely enthralled, but nobody was more enthralled than my grandfather. And, and one of the things that just moved, he, he had suffered a serious farm accident that, that, in which he had lost part of one of his legs, and so, we, so we're in the handicapped section of, of that second aisle where they make a little bit more room. And Norma Zimmer's on that stage and just he is, he is entranced, my grandmother's entranced, she's singing, but she catches his eye. And I forever, I don't know whether this was planned or not planned, uh, but she's singing the lyrics of, of this song. And, and here, here's the lyrics, it's, it's reach out and touch somebody's hand and make this world a better place if you can. And she's singing that, rough, that song, and then she decides to step off the platform. And she walks down, I know I'm losing the YouTube, but she walks down right to my grandfather, and she grabs his hand, and she sings that song to him. And I'm telling you, I wasn't necessarily a Norma Zimmer fan before that, but she became my favorite singer of all time. <laughs> Because what she did in that moment with the glitzy dress and the poofy hair was so, and I don't know how much I realized it at the time, but I realize it now, it was so Christ-like. She left her place of comfort and of the spotlight and of the privilege, and she, she left that stage to take the hand 
of just a simple person in that room and poured her affection, her life, her attention. I mean, she must have sung that entire song just to my grandfather. All the old men around us were just just amazed, you know, just (laughs) awestruck. My friends, that is a demonstration, I think, of Jesus' power. Uh, Philippians 2 says that the, the way he exercised his power was not a lord in and over us, but, that, but he left his eternal comforts. It says that though he possessed equality with God, he did not view equality with God something to be grasped onto, but he emptied himself. Uh, he never stopped being the son of God. <laughs> he has always been God. He will always be God, but he emptied himself of the glory and the comforts, and he deferred. What did he defer to? He deferred to pour the riches of his person into our salvation so that we might, we might join him. And ultimately, that's the power of love. That's not the love of power. That's the power of love that has an ever-increasing concentric circle. And, and I want to say, that is the power of a good marriage. That's the power of good parenting. That's the power of good leadership in the business world. It, it is the power of a love that is self-giving, that is revolutionary, that speaks of what Christ did for us. And each one of us has a unique opportunity to live that kind of love out. That is a love that people say, they're, they're, I don't understand maybe or agree with what you believe, but I have to confess there is beauty in how you are living. There is beauty in how you are treating each other. That's what I covet people to say about us as a community at CLC. I don't know what those people are smoking. (laughs) But whatever it is, I see a relational, deference, self-giving, inclusive activism that is embracing more and more people and bringing them into the heart of the circle, that that is Christian love, and that is what Paul says when he says, if if we are filled with the Spirit of Christ, that's what will be reverberating out from us. Has God brought anyone into your mind this morning? I want to just have us bow for a moment and ask you to ask God, who is there? Where is that place of application? And to open yourself, maybe just open your hands, open your heart in a way and say, God, bring to me whoever might surface that you might minister in that way. God, we just quiet our hearts and we pray that in the silence you might bring to the surface a name a face, maybe the person we're sitting right next to, it, maybe someone else. The Lord, you would, you would call us to fill that relationship with an expression of love, of self-emptying, of ourselves, of no agenda but love. We pray for that power in all of our relationships. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us strength and focus and perseverance and resilience so that the force of love would come through us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the origin of all of this because of what you did before the foundation of the world and then effected in the cross of Christ, we have a new calling. We ask that you grant us grace to live that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's our privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper, and this is for those who acknowledge their sins and confess their faith in Christ. We're going to do that in a couple ways. We're going to invite us Uh, to confess together uh, our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you would are able to and would like to, please stand as we confess our faith with the church down through the ages. And this is not just a statement of faith, but it is a statement of relationship. Um, I believe the most important words maybe in this creed is the word I believe in. It's not I believe that, uh, an idea, but it's like my faith is in this God, this triune God. And so believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you believe? 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. I want to just provide this as a prayer for us as we come and acknowledge our sin and our need. And so if you'd like, you can speak the words of this and offer it to God as a prayer. Let's pray together. Forgive me my sins, O Lord, the sins of my present and the sins of my past, the sins of my soul and the sins of my body, the sins which I have done to please myself, and the sins which I have done to please others. Forgive me my casual sins and my deliberate sins, and those which I have labored so to hide that I have hidden them even from myself. Forgive me them, O Lord, forgive them all, for Jesus Christ's sake, amen. If you confess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've done, and you confess that you need his grace, as we've done in that prayer of confession, then this table is for you. It's for sinners. It's for those who need grace. Uh, and it is where the Lord meets us with his kiss of forgiveness and also with his strength um, of resilience. That just as we feed upon these emblems and take them into our bodies, so we feed on Christ by faith. And so I invite you on those terms, if you're a believer in Christ and you have confessed your sin and are relying upon his grace, then by all means, I believe Christ would say to you, come. And these are the words of institution. Our Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, our Lord took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I now invite you, if our servers will come forward, you can come and take uh, by dipping the bread in the cup here or if you're gluten-free on this side to partake of the Lord's Supper.
beauty for ashes 
is found in 2 Corinthians 5.15, which says, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and lives again. Lift up your hearts to receive his benediction. As we go to live this out, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,